Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Belly of the Beast shines a white-hot spotlight on the pastoral farmland surrounding the Central California Women's Facility, or CCWF, the world's largest women's prison. For decades, CCWF concealed the reproductive and human rights violations transpiring inside its walls. A courageous woman, Kelly Dillon, was involuntarily sterilized at CCWF. She teams up with a fantastic radical attorney by the name of Cynthia Chandler to stop these violations. Together, they spearhead an investigation to a series of statewide crimes, primarily targeting women of color for inadequate access to health care, sexual assault, and illegal sterilizations. The film is called Belly of the Beast, and we're joined today by the director, Erica Cohn. Erica, welcome back to Film School Radio. Thanks so much for having me back. Yes, thank you. You were on for The Judge, which was a fantastic film. Thank you for that. And what a wonderful character you found in The Judge. Uh, and as, as well here, uh, Kelly Dillon is uh, a very empathetic woman, a woman f- from exactly kind of the profile of the people who were being abused by this system. And, and then, of course, Cynthia Chandler is another wonderful part of this film. But tell me a little bit about how you got to know about this, how you got involved, what, what sparked this uh, particular documentary, Belly of the Beast. So the journey starts about 10 years ago <laughs> um, in 2010, which is the same year that I actually started the film before the judge called In Football We Trust. And uh, attorney Cynthia Chandler and I were introduced through a mutual friend. And I was really inspired by her compassionate release work. She was the first attorney to get uh, someone out of prison in California under compassionate release. And also really inspired by her organization, Justice Now's Let Our Family Have a Future campaign, which really exposed the multiple ways that prisons destroy the basic human right to family one of the most heinous being the illegal sterilizations, of course. And that really screamed eugenics to me. The sterilizations were primary to, primarily targeting women of color. And as a Jewish woman who grew up in Salt Lake City, the phrase never again was always profoundly in the back of my mind. And when I learned about this different kind of genocide that was happening through imprisonment, through forced sterilizations behind bars, I knew that I wanted to get involved. And initially that was as a volunteer. I began um, collaborating with Justice Now as a volunteer working um, with campaign videos, editing them, kind of putting them together. And then later became a volunteer legal advocate providing direct service needs for over 150 people inside California's women's prisons. And initially, The idea, as we know, filmmakers have many ideas that morph and change throughout the process of the making of a film. The initial idea was to really document the incredible human rights documentation that was going on inside prison and then informing strategy from the inside out. So Justice Now is one of the only organizations in the country, if not the only organization, that had board members who are currently incarcerated informing policy and strategy. The incredible network of activists inside prison who were educating each other about human rights abuses, finding ways to document them, 
and then expose them with the help of people in the free world like myself, that was that was really a profound experience to me. And so the process was kind of filming and documenting this until I met Kelly. <laughs> and I had heard about Kelly's powerful activism and her kind of being the, the initial spark that set off this entire investigation into the illegal sterilization abuse from numerous people inside. And of course, at Justice Now, she was legendary. And when I first met her, she, uh, this was about 2012, she had really put the sterilization issue to bed. She wanted nothing to do with that at that point in her life. She had lost her trial. She was moving on with her life as an incredible community activist doing a lot of domestic violence prevention and gang intervention work. And we hit it off as friends and she became involved in the project as an advisor kind of behind the scenes. And in 2013, that all changed when the Center for Investigative Reporting story broke that really propelled this conversation about the illegal sterilizations into national attention and led to a series of hearings in California and ultimately led to a bill being passed uh, preventing sterilization for the purpose of birth control in California's prisons. And that was the moment when it was, once again, Kelly was called to tell her story to protect other people from um, experiencing this kind of abuse and to also seek some sort of justice for those who had been um, illegally sterilized by the state. And that was also the moment that she decided to go on camera and tell her story um, in addition to being documented as she um, told, uh, told her story to legislators and spoke before the California state legislature. So everything shifted. And as you see in the film, the narrative, the film's arc really centers around um, Kelly, her, her discovery and her relationship with Cynthia Chandler. Yeah, yeah. And it's a fantastic thing about documentary films, documentary filmmakers, is that they are willing and often have to, but mostly willing to take these twists and turns and to play it out, to see where it's going to end. You never know. That's the beauty of documentary film. I, I just, it's my admiration to to people who are involved in that endeavor is you just do not know where you're going to end up. I mean, you can do a profile of somebody, you have an idea where you're going to end up. But when you take on something like this, especially something that is as immense as uh, our criminal reform, criminal justice, it is such a huge tangle of different interests and issues and all these different elements come into play it's almost impossible to know where you're going to end up with a story like this it's so true what i really found shocking about the film on many different things about the film are shocking but who knew that people against their knowledge against their will were being sterilized i can't imagine anything more fundamentally offensive to someone than that than to a woman who or to anyone. I mean, the, the sensibilities are shocked, no matter who you are. But I, what I didn't know, and what this film lays out beautifully, is California's history in this. This is something that I is hard to believe. But would you mind talking a little bit about our California's very tortured history, and when it comes to eugenics? Yeah, I think when we hear of these modern day instances of eugenics of the sterilization abuse, like. California's women's prisons, um, or the recent news about the ice sterilizations in Georgia, it is shocking. And it was so important 
for me in the making of this film to contextualize with historical precedents to help us better understand that these are not isolated incidents, right. that this is a part of a legacy of forced sterilization in the United States and how it is deeply rooted in white supremacy. And so when we think of the term eugenics, we think of Nazi Germany. And I'm just going to quickly define in a very essential, like basic terms, essentially the, what eugenics is. Essentially the state is trying to create a master race by controlling who gets to live and who gets to die. So when we hear that, we think of Nazi Germany. But what we don't know is that Nazi Germany actually came to the United States came to California to learn from our eugenics policies, specifically our sterilization approach, and brought that back to employ during the Holocaust. And California had a eugenics program between 1909 and 1979 in which they sterilized over 20,000 people. And that was nearly one third of all of the sterilizations that were performed throughout the US during the historical eugenics programs. And so throughout the United States, we see those laws remain on the books until the 1970s, even in some states, 1980s. And so compulsory sterilization targeted those who were deemed quote, unfit or quote, undesirable. So those were people who were poor, uh, women who became pregnant out of wedlock, people with disabilities, people in prison, people of color, and of course, women of color were the most impacted. And I also think it's really important to say that we are coming up on the 100 year anniversary of the infamous 1927 Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell, which upheld a statute instituting compulsory sterilization for the quote, unfit, for the protection and health of the state. And that really set a precedence for states to legally sterilize people in prisons. And although state, federal, and international law explicitly ban compulsory sterilization, that decision to this day has yet to be overturned. As we speak, there is a confirmation hearing for someone to, that will be seated at the Supreme Court, in, inevitably, it seems. It would be great if somebody asked her this question. How do you feel about Buck v. Bell? It, I would, it, because first of all, it would come out of the blue, but secondly, it would be such a lightning strike in terms of the consciousness of this country about that particular issue of sterilization. And in the film, there's one doctor that is brought to our attention, uh, Dr. Heinrich, who was in the footage and the description of him was exceedingly casual, matter of fact about this kind of thing. And the, and you hear this argument. I've heard this before. I saw it in your film. Well, you know, I mean, should they be reproducing? I mean, should these people be reproducing after all they're in prison? I mean, just all kinds of rationalizing of it is it's still out there. I, I think part of the thing that I was struck by in this film that six states still have not um, have not actually outlawed illegal sterilization. Did I read that right? Um our team sent dozens of Freedom of uh, Information Act requests to states all across the country. And we know that this is happening in at least eight states. Okay. But we don't know to what degree the sterilization abuse is happening because of the levels of secrecy and privacy that these institutions are, are able to hide behind. Going back to Dr. Heinrich, it's easy to vilify just him, like say, look, he's the origin of all evil that has happened in, as, around this particular issue. 
but he's not. But he is kind of a, a, a good example, humanizing, if you will, if that's the right word, this institutional crime. Yeah, I think it's it's really important to to highlight that this is not about one bad apple. This is about an entire system that needs to be held accountable. And when you go back into California's history, the federal receivership had to come in and literally take over healthcare in prison because it was so deplorable. So in 2006, the federal government was in charge of overseeing California's healthcare in prison. So you have multiple layers of approval in order for one procedure to be performed. So as you see in the film, you know, the federal receiver himself is, is talking about, you know, I didn't know that this was happening. How could you not know it was happening when the levels of approval in order for someone who is in state custody to be sent outside of prison walls to an outside medical facility. And I think it's important to, to note that these procedures actually didn't take place at the prison. They took place at outside hospitals and including two uh, teaching hospitals in, in California, UCS Davis and UC San Diego. With that answer, you're identifying so many different institutions and people with some financial interest and all these different elements that play into this as well. And also, let's not put aside in any way the actual institutional racism that is a huge part of this. Uh, so, uh, it, yeah, it's just it's mind boggling. I, I just when I it's so many things in the film, but I want to let our listeners know that we're speaking with the director of this documentary film called Belly of the Beast, and that's director Erica Cohn. Let's focus a little bit of our attention. You mentioned how Kelly Dillon changed your life, and I do want to talk about, we talked a little bit about the arc of her story, but what a dynamic person she is. And as the film progresses, you get an opportunity to see how empowered she becomes over the course of the making of this film, how, what a what first of all, what an amazing person to kind of rise above all of the things that have happened and, and going back to her reason for being in prison in the first place. Another whole issue, right, around women of color, but women in general, domestic violence and how that plays out. So this film does a lot of you. This is really kind of a um, spinning some plates here in terms of what you are able to pull into this film. Mm-hmm. Prison reform, women of color, domestic violence. What's the system? Does it work? Does it not work? How does this play out? Healthcare. There are a lot of things going on in this film, but let's talk a little bit about uh, Kelly Dillon, if, if you wouldn't mind, just about in terms of her arc of her story. Yeah, I think you bring up a really interesting point. The, the way in which the film was crafted was almost as if audience members were understanding and figuring out little pieces of information. It was peeling back the layers of the onion, you right. know, so to speak. And so we're introduced to Kelly through this unbelievable deposition footage, which is a whole nother story about how we how we discovered that. But we, we meet her when she is very young. She's in her 20s. She's describing how she ended up in prison, which was defending herself against her abuser. At 19 years old, she is imprisoned. She gets sent to the largest women's prison in the world, CCWF in Chowchilla, California and at 24 years old is sterilized during another routine procedure. Feels like something is wrong coming out of that procedure. Ask the doctor for information, 
doctors tell her nothing about what has happened and over the next two years goes through uh, tremendous hormonal imbalances because at 24 she is being catapulted into surgical menopause. Later, a couple years later, she was actually told that she had the, the hormone levels of a 65 year old having gone through menopause as a young woman, strong woman in her mid twenties. And so that process of discovery is incredibly painful and incredibly fraught because she is not the one who has access to her medical record. She is the one who has to reach out to Cynthia Chandler, the attorney to get help in requesting her medical records. And then has a moment where she has to be told, Cynthia Chandler actually has to tell Kelly that she is no longer able to have children, that she was forcibly sterilized against her will. And um, the, the levels of, of additional trauma that, that Kelly goes through is just, is unimaginable. And then to have the courage to not only discover that this has happened to her, but other women of color. And that discovery process of, okay, it's not just me, it's hundreds of other women, predominantly women of color, and I am going to be the voice, the advocate for all of them by taking CDC or CDCR to trial. And there's one other element in all of this that it's not in the film, but it's implicitly in the film, that the preponderance of women in prison at CCWF are women of color. Women of color are the fastest growing prison population today as well. So when you think of, you know, demographics, I think that's really important to note. Right. And going just a, a couple of steps back from that and knowing that our school systems often deal with incidents, things that happen in school by bringing police into, there's, into the schools to deal with it is another, which has been uh, documented, very thoroughly documented. It's not just me talking about this, but going back for decades about this pipeline from schools into prisons is another part of the story that it's part of the story. It's not explicitly in the film like I'm describing it, but it is in the film. Why is there a preponderance of people of color in prison at all? And that's another, but uh, yeah, there's it's <laughs> there's a lot to there's a lot to digest here in this film. There's a lot to think about, and I'm so grateful that you made this film. And it's something that uh, we, we that you did a fantastic job with what you what you were hoping to accomplish. It feels like you got there. How do you feel in terms of what as you stand back and look at what you did with Belly of the Beast? What what do you what's your takeaway from from you as meeting your objectives? How, how, how did it all turn out for you? I think for me, the most important takeaway in this moment, um, while we're releasing the film in, uh, in a global pandemic in the midst of the uprisings is that this film is incredibly timely, incredibly urgent because eugenics is alive and well. It's yeah. not something of the past. We are witnessing systemic racism and population control through policing, through imprisonment, through now the immigration detention system, through lack of access to healthcare. And I really feel that Belly of the Beast is a part of the broader conversation that highlights these injustices and calls for lasting change. We actually have um, a petition on our website right now, bellyofthebeastfilm.com, 
where you can also find out about our upcoming theatrical release on October 16th and other screening opportunities. Um, and the petition is for reparations for California's forced sterilization survivors. And I believe that that not only will continue to make amends for historical sterilizations following in the footsteps of North Carolina and Virginia, actually the first two states to pass reparations for those who were illegally sterilized through the historic eugenics program, but also continue to ensure accountability for modern day instances of sterilization abuse, like what has happened in California's women's prisons and like what we just saw in the ICE detention facilities in Georgia. So I truly believe if we hold our institutions and state actors accountable, right. that we can prevent these abuses from happening in the future. And just as you identified, bellyofthebeastfilm.com, and there is um, a link here, get involved, partners and resources. So there are, there are ways in, in, in addition to hosting a screening, it has been opening around the country in virtual theaters, and it has been getting held over, which is a sign that it is it's it's getting getting the kind of attention that it deserves. Is that right? Yes, and if you don't have an opportunity to see the film in virtual cinema, you can also see it on PBS's Independent Lens on November twenty third. Well, Erica Cohn, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. The film again is Belly of the Beast. Come back anytime, and uh, and thank you for this film. Thank you so much for having me. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio. Film School Radio.